بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. Peace and love, everybody. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. I'm broadcasting, or I should say, recording tonight. Uh, it's about 11 o'clock at night on a Monday evening. I'm recording in my studio slash office and workspace in Uskudar, Istanbul, Turkey, on the Asian side of the of the Bosphorus. Uh, Turkey, Turkey is mostly in Asia, uh, but there's a strait of water that separates the Asian continent from the European continent. And most of the city of Istanbul is actually on the European continent. And me and my family and another number of other dear families live in this really traditional neighborhood directly on the other side of the water um, called Uskudar. And I always say we live on the edge of Asia. Like we literally, from my house, you can see the water You can see Maiden's Tower, Kiz Kulese, and on the other side you see Galata Tower. And, um, you know, Istanbul really is a city of neighborhoods, and this little neighborhood that we live in has changed so much since we've been living here, so much that I've learned from being here. Part of what me and my wife really wrestle with is that, you know, we feel so connected to these neighborhoods that have been so deeply gentrified. My wife was born in Spanish Harlem, and that's so spent, so gentrified now. The Spanish Harlem is being referred to as Spaha. It's disgusting. It's really heartbreaking and infuriating. Um, and then also, you know, she lived in the Bronx. The Bronx is, has not been gentrified yet. Not really. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, we have dear beloved friends that Brooklyn is is extremely gentrified. And it's a trip, you know, because... Now we're on the other side of that. Like we live in this neighborhood and we've seen how much it's changed in the last two years. And people want to be here because of this deep, rich mystique and meaning of living in this very old school, traditional, historic neighborhood. You know, and we showed up as Westerners spending U.S. dollars or like converting our U.S. dollars to Turkish lira. So the while the lira is crashing, and so you know the prices are skyrocketing, and we can still afford to pay those prices because of the fact that we're essentially you know spending English do- U.S. dollars, and we're speaking English, and so whether we want to or not, we're part of this wave of gentrification that's happening in our neighborhood because if something costs you know, double what it used to cost, but for us, it's still extremely affordable. We can still afford it. And people are starting to set up these, you know, businesses in Uskudar that like they're here because this neighborhood is being gentrified, but they also have stuff that me and my family want. And the people there are starting to learn to speak English. And it's the easiest place for us to go and shop, you know? So it's a trip also to see it from the other side. You start realizing that most of the people that moved to Brooklyn moved there because it was inexpensive and they love what that neighborhood means, or at least the best of them do. But then they're also part of this wave of gentrifying it. I remember talking to Reggie Ose, Combat Jack, rest in peace, uh, the greatest hip hop podcaster of all time, in my opinion, um, about the fact that he grew up in Brooklyn and lived in Brooklyn, but then he and his amazing wife were also professionals. Like Reggie was a lawyer and he actually left his law practice to do his podcast, but he was a, a well-established lawyer in entertainment law. 
And so he was like, man, I, we stayed in Brooklyn because we care about it. I don't like seeing it be gentrified, but he's like, man, I also have a taste for these things. So like the bodega that my parents can't afford to shop anymore, man, they got the good almond milk and they got the good free range organic chicken and they got the organic, you know, strawberries. And, you know, he's like, man, it, you know, the the weird kind of struggle and interplay of that. And we came to this neighborhood because we couldn't really afford to be in Minneapolis anymore. But now we come here spending U.S. dollars and speaking English. And when these gentrifier kind of things happen, man, they do make life easier for us. It's just really a trip to be in this situation. But also Istanbul is a city of neighborhoods. And it's a city where, and I promise this is all relevant to something that just happened, to a moment that we're living in now and also to our guests. So I promise I'm not just all over the place. Bear with me. It's also a city of neighborhoods, and it's a city where, in my observation of living here for the past two years, is that it's a place where you can live a real vastly different types of lifestyles here, and people here have learned how to share life together. So because of their history, and there's a lot of nuance that I won't go into right now, but there are people here that are very deeply religious, and there are people here that are very deeply secular. So this was the seat of the Ottoman Caliphate for 500 years. And it also, when um, imperialism and colonialism was happening through Europe, it was a place where they were never colonized. They were never invaded. They were never defeated. They were never taken over. They were never part of anybody's empire. And that was the case because the person that founded Turkey, Turkey as a nation state, he led them in combat. But he also was deeply secular. So he disbanded the Islamic Caliphate, uh, the last legitimate Islamic Caliphate. And he also founded Turkey as a secular nation state. And so there's this very deep, rich, complex, nuanced history that as visitors, we just try to be respectful of it. But one of the things I notice is that you can live such different lifestyles in Turkey. The secular people and the religious people share this city. And I think we do it very well. My family, it's interesting, another layer too, because you know we're religious people as part of why we moved here. And we're pretty orthodox in our practice, even in America. You know what I'm saying? We weren't we were only eating halal meat and um you know all the all the kind of like markings of you know my my wife and daughters wear hijab uh we don't shake hands with the opposite gender you know there's like all these things that kind of like mark we pray five times a day on time things like that or strive to these are all things that we strive to practice and so in America we were a pretty conservative in terms of our practice religious family but we're also culturally and socially we're westerners so my daughter skateboards and you know what i'm saying we're into all of this like western cultural stuff too we're really like artsy cultural people at the same time so istanbul has been really good for us for so many reasons but one of the things i notice is that religious people um share the city with secular people so when it's time to pray in america for example Muslims, if you've ever been around religious Muslims, you know that when it's time to pray, we just bust down and pray wherever we are. We'll pray at a truck stop. We'll pray in the changing room at Target. We'll pray at the park. We'll pray in a parking lot. We'll pray anywhere we are. Like we're going to find a place to wash up. We're going to throw our jacket on the floor 
to get a little clean space and we're going to pray wherever we are. In Turkey, you don't do that because of the fact that there's a mosque everywhere and in every public place, there's a separate private place to go and pray. So you just do not practice your religion in front of other people. Like you don't put it in, in people's faces. You know, there's the call for prayer that happens in a thousand mosques all over the city. But even that call to prayer by most people is understood to be part of Turkish culture. And so if I'm going to wear religious clothes, and sometimes I do, sometimes I wear, I don't. But when I'm wearing religious clothes in Istanbul, I'm not going to wear like the Yemeni uh, robe that I wear when I'm in Saudi Arabia. And I'm not going to wear Moroccan clothes. I'm not going to wear Arab religious clothes. I'm going to wear culturally and historically Turkish religious clothes. Because even secular people, when they see me, they know that like that's part of our Turkish history and heritage. And this is a religious person that's respecting our heritage. And so it's a way of honoring even like the secular people. And then the secular people, if they want to drink alcohol, you can buy alcohol in the store and you can drink it at your house. But if you're going to do it in public, there are certain neighborhoods where you do that. Or, you know, most places, it's the general kind of rule here that they don't sell pork. But in certain neighborhoods, in those neighborhoods, you can go to an Italian restaurant and they're going to serve pork there and it's going to be well-known and established. So these neighborhoods here, you can do whatever you want. You can live the way you want to live. And we share life in a way that's really respectful of a pluralistic culture. It's one of the things that we really love. And then it's so just like aesthetically beautiful, every part of it. The, everybody agrees on that. You're going to be fashionable. You're going to be, the, your aesthetics got to be dope. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever you're doing, it's got to look good and it's got to smell good and it's got to sound good and it's got to be funky and soulful. That's something that everybody agrees on, you know? So as an artist, like that really matters to me. But there was just in uh, last night, about 24 hours ago, we got news that there had been an explosion in a very touristy part of the city on the western, in the uh, in the European side, there's a, a street called Istiklal Street. That's an outdoor shopping district. Um, they've got it's basically like an outdoor shopping mall, but there are some traditional Turkish restaurants and things. But it's a major center of like shopping, and it, all the tourists go there. And it feeds into a, a area called Taksim Square which from my understanding is bars and nightclubs. Like that's the major, like if you come to Turkey cause you want to go clubbing and there are people that do that. There are some people that come to like visit the mosques and the like great uh, historical holy figures that are buried here. There's a lot of, and, and centers of learning and knowledge and culture and history. There are people that come for that. There are people that come to, to Istanbul to party and that's the area where they go. And we got news about 4.30 yesterday afternoon that there was an explosion there that killed a handful of people and wounded a bunch of people. And so we find out today that it seems as though that was actually a terrorist attack, um, which is something that doesn't happen a lot in Turkey. When I lived in America, there are so many like active shooters and public acts of terror that they don't even all get reported anymore. But in this country, it's very rare that somebody murders somebody. It's very rare that there's a public act of violence. It's very rare that a police officer kills a citizen. It almost never happens. In America, these things happen every single day. So when they happen here, it's a big deal. And they should be a big deal. And they shouldn't be normal. And it shouldn't be something that doesn't even make the news. In America, it would be. Maybe. 
In America, it might not even make the news. You never know. It depends on what that news cycle is, is about. So here, though, that was really disturbing. But then they shut down social media for 12 hours from 4.30 at night till 4.30 in the morning. I was up taking care of my daughter who's sick. And I was like, you couldn't load Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. None of those things would load on our phones. And it was a trip. You know, we talk all the time about the fact that you got to go to brotherali.com, sign the mailing list. That's the way to get with us because these are owned by corporations and they're under the control of governments. And they can be shut down and they can be controlled. And people can be kicked off for, for voicing certain opinions and things like that. But it was a trip. I was really thinking about the fact that, you know, today's Monday and we dropped it, this week's episode of the podcast. And I'm thinking, man, am I going to be able to go online and promote and announce and let people know about the new episode of the podcast? And after about 12 hours, you know, they came back online and we were able to access them again. But it was really a trip. So I just say all that to say that, you know, our people have been reaching out. Are you guys okay? Are you good? Yeah, we're we're okay and we're good. Um, but it just really has me thinking about living in the world as it is in this moment of time. And just we're living in very turbulent times on a lot of different levels. And I feel separated from it to a certain degree because it's so in your face in America. America is so uniquely uh, vocal and confrontational about uh, all of their opinions and about all their differences and what have you. And so I'm watching footage of my my friends on Saturday Night Live last night, Dave Chappelle, Yasin Bey, Talib Kweli, you know, seeing them on uh, on Saturday Night Live and all the things that are just going on. So I'm just really here sitting in that moment. Now, how does that relate to this week's podcast episode? Because my friend, Sage Francis, one of the one of the most important figures in the underground independent cohort of artists that I came up with, uh, he was the first person I knew that performed in Istanbul. And he reached out to me. This was over 10 years ago. And he hit me up and was like, yo, have you ever been to Istanbul? Like, man, I feel like you got to come here, man. And at that time, I didn't have any friends that lived here. I didn't have any connection to this place. He was one of the first people that I knew that came here. Um, you know, I have to say also Khaled El Amin, who is a North High, Minneapolis North High basketball star, who then went on and played for UConn, and he won championships for UConn. And then he went to the NBA for a little bit, but then he ended up settling in Turkey. But he wasn't in Istanbul, I don't think. But anyway, so we know Khaled came here but and, and played ball here. But of my hip-hop friends, Sage was the first guy to come here and, and was the first one to put it in my mind. You really need to come to Istanbul, man. I, he's like, I just, I thought about you in every moment that I was here. Sage Francis is a force of nature. And as you'll hear in this conversation, he's somebody that is really, uh, most people when they first meet him or encounter him, they're standoffish to him and they're almost like they're guarded around him. And it's that way because he's so hard to define. Um, he's an incredible poet, spoken word poet. He's an incredible MC. He's a, he could be a comedian. I've told him so many times, like you could be a comedian. He's an incredible storyteller. He's an incredible orator. And then physically the way he uses his physical body is just so, 
incredible that it's hard to get a gauge on him or get a read on him. It's hard to, to position him and locate him. Like, who is this dude? And so, so many of us that have become such good friends with him, you know, when we started out, were guarded. I met Sage on stage 22 years ago, summer of 2000. We both were battling and competing in Scribble Jam, which was one of the big institutions in, in battle rap at that time when battling was two MCs with a beat in 30 seconds and you had to come off the top of the head. You didn't know who you were going to battle. You had to, you know, give rebuttals to what each other were saying. It was expected that you were coming off the top of the head. And a lot of us, you know, we're doing that. We're engaged in that at that time. So that's how I met Sage. And I could not figure out how I felt about this dude. But then in 2007, seven years later, we went on the Pay Dues Tour, which my man Merce put together. And there was a Rhyme Sayers bus, a Def Jugs bus, and a Living Legends bus. And Sage was the kind of lone uh, <laughs> free agent at that time. So he was on the Rhyme Sayers bus. And I went into that tour knowing I kind of know everybody on this tour, but me and Sage really deeply bonded. And there have been moments of our friendship that we've really leaned on that bond and that it's really, it's really done both of us really well. One of those moments is when uh, our, our mutual dear friend Idea passed away. Um, you know, Sage was a really important friend to me at that time. And you'll hear in the podcast that the only time he ever came to my house was when Idea's mom, Kathy, threw an event for him and Sage came in town for that event. And we ended up really spending some dear, some important time. But then also, you know, there was a moment where I think that was really important for him where he spent his whole touring career being uh, single and without children. And then that changed for him really quickly. He ended up falling head over heels in love with this woman that had two girls and and he became their their stepdad, but their dad. They became his children very quickly. It was really clear, like, these aren't stepkids. I mean, on paper, that's what they are. But Sage really started to see himself as the person whose honor and responsibility it was to care for these girls. And his life became a really domestic one. And so I saw Sage in maybe... 2018 or 19, uh, he came with B. Dolan as Epic Beardman, one of the groups that he does. And they were performing at the festival. And I could just see that he was having that realization that the art that cr allowed for him to have this amazing life where he could care for this family and where he could be so invested in them and so present with them was also taking them, was also taking him away from them on the road. And that moment that all of us as artists who are also have families realize that these different really deep loves in my life are also going to be at war with each other on some level. You know, that the art provides for my family and my family makes the art that much more meaningful. And, and these are the two deep, deep, deep loves and commitments of my life. And when I'm with my family, I'm going to be neglecting my art. And when I'm pursuing my art, I'm going to be neglecting my family. And I was with him at that moment and feel really honored and blessed and grateful to be been able to share that moment because there wasn't much many words. It was just him really being birthed into the realization of what that thing means, you know. 
So this is somebody that I've learned a lot from, somebody that I've squared off against very publicly, <laughs> somebody who, uh, you know, that I've just been really blessed to do life with. One of the reasons that I do this podcast, and I'm grateful to share. Uh, we're brought to you, as always, by the Zakat Foundation and by BetterHelp Online Therapy Platform. Just grateful to be here with you, grateful to be here together with the people that we do life with, people we share life with and share these conversations with. Enjoy this episode of The Traveler's Podcast. I didn't prepare for this conversation the way I do most of them. Like most people, I go back and I like I watch a lot of people's interviews and uh, listen to things. And if somebody's written a book, I try to read, try to make it through that book before I talk to them. But with with yours, I just I watched a lot of I ended up watching a lot of YouTube clips just from around the time that we met. So like a lot of stuff from like 2000 until 2010. Mm -hmm. And so it was like such a like a trip down memory lane. And I think that that was the best way. That's the way that I chose to do it. Because for me, my relationship with you represents my relationship with the kind of like cohort and scene that we both came up in. Mm -hmm. And the the feelings of like, in, initially I was like, I don't know how to feel about this thing. It doesn't feel, I'm not used to it. I don't get it. Like, you know, I think that initially with you, I felt... Um, this weird kind of feeling of like, I don't understand this guy. He seems yeah. to know a bunch of things that I don't know. I can't front, there's nothing to front on at all, but this is like very familiar and very strange at the same time. And then I, I like, I think I know when the switch fully flipped for me, but like at, a, at some point there was a period where I was just was like, my God, I'm so grateful that I know this guy, that I know, you know, and that's the same way that I felt about our cohort of artists. And so now it's just all gratitude. And I feel a lot of, I feel like a really deep sense of pride for the group of people that we came up with, even the ones that I don't really, that I never really got to know. Yeah. I just have this sense of great it's feeling good. about it's that. It's really great. We get to be at that point in our lives where we can do that and, and be appreciative and grateful for things that for some reason, it just wasn't in the cards back when we first met, um, when we were coming up and all the conversations I've heard you have on this podcast, it's they're so familiar to me. It's crazy how similar um, our upbringings were in in really strange ways. Uh, just uh, you know, coming into hip hop, learning everything we could about it in a very strange space, and then eventually coming across one another and keeping our guard up. You know, the the conversation with Vinnie Paz, where you know you had to wear an armor. There's um there's a big reason for that. But when we met, I knew like I could sense the coldness. I could sense the doubt in me and my nature and um my intentions. Uh that's something we always had to be careful of with whoever we work with or were associated with, because it's your career on the line, it's your life's work on the line. And yeah, yeah so it's all understandable, but um I am very glad that most of us have been able to live as long as we have to come full circle and revisit these things that we can now make better sense of because it's an old dead world where you can dissect it and and um, just make sense of the parts that were weird. 
I think so much of, of, of the way that our relationship started was the fact that I met you battling you. Like I didn't ever, I never got to even see you. I, the first time that I heard you is when we were driving to Scribble Jam and I knew that you existed, but I always associated you with the Anacon movement. And at that time, it was really easy for me to just write that whole thing off, except for, except for Jell. You know what I mean? But like, it was very easy for me to just be like, I don't like this thing and I don't, I don't, I don't need to. I don't need to think about it anymore. It's like very neat. You know what I'm saying? I don't deal with these guys. But we we're going to Scribble Jam and somebody started playing your mixtapes. And I was like, yo, this dude is going to be there? And they're like, yes. And he's amazing. Like he, you do not want to, like you don't want to square off with him if you can avoid it. And I'm listening like, man, this is different. Like this guy is yeah. different. <laughs> uh, and it just yeah. makes so much sense, man. Like, like how much we, how much we have in common. Like all of the, like, you, you know, I don't I still possess the things from when I was a kid, but like, hearing your old tapes and seeing the photos and articles that you wrote and things that you did. It's like, man, the, the truth is I wish that we could have had each other in elementary school and middle school and yeah. high school. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I mean, I needed that. <laughs> I need, I needed that. And I was, I was in deep search of a tribe because I didn't feel like I was part of anything, any type of group. Um, Right up and I mean, that's even why I was associated with the Anticon dudes, because um, I finally had a group of people who were in hip hop, like doing releasing music in the industry, which was um, really crazy to me because they were in my general location. They were in New England and um, they they kind of looked at me suspicious the same way you did. But uh, thankfully, you know, I ended up becoming really good friends with, um, alias rest in peace and, yeah. um, soul who was the most, um, grading figure, uh, probably of, of Anticon and a big reason why they ever gained any footing because of what he did, um, controversy wise and getting Anticon's name out there. And, um, and we, I, I mean, I always kind of, I mean, he pisses a lot of people off. He always did. And he kind of got a kick out of it as did I, but that was like the asshole new England nature of us. And, um, so, but yeah, at Anticon as a collective, it was like, wow, I finally get to be part of something in hip hop. It's not what I would ever envision. It's not what I envisioned for myself as a kid. Cause I did, I mean, I came up in, I mean, loving the black power movement in hip hop, <laughs> you know, like yes. I was there. Yeah. I, I mean, it was all X clan, Paris, KRS one public. Enemy. it was all that. And I consumed as much of that as I could. And then it got to a point where I knew how I looked. Obviously I was like, not gonna, I, I was always going to be clowned on for just being a white dude. And at a certain point, and it took a lot for me to do this, but I kind of just owned it. I owned th that look and that stereotype and not that that was me, but especially battle wise, it was fun to play with because that is something you would always encounter in hip hop battles is like, that's how they break you down. But if you own it first, it gives them, it makes it much more difficult for your opponent to um, continually talk about it. So, yeah. And I think that that was the thing that was so off putting is like we were so much alike. But then that particular day, 
you had on like a rock, some kind of rock t-shirt and you had on a wig. And so I was like, you had that whole thing. But like those, like, I, I think my thing with like Anacon and like, Anacon just kind of represented something to me. There's no particular individual that I think means this, at least not now. But at that time it felt like these are white dudes that are very like book smart in white boy ways. I don't think that I'm socialized the same as them. I when I heard them rap, it didn't feel like they really I couldn't hear like the have these guys been rapping since 85? Um, do they really know all the things that they're supposed to know? Like I was not clear about that. But so when you came out dressed like that and I had that association, but then the way that you rhymed and also the way that you carried yourself was like, man, if we fight, I don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> like, uh, you know well, saying? I'll tell you what, like, I, I, let me say something. Uh, my upbringing, what also gave me an advantage was how competitive I've been my whole life and in mm. sports and in martial arts and mm. being in competitions, you know, like I know how to navigate a competition, one with rules and limits and like how to manipulate that to my advantage. I've had years and years and years of doing it, not just battling. I mean, just mentally, emotionally learning how to control um, what I need to control. And that yeah. I think is an X factor that you can't ever quite pinpoint, but it's just like a, a seasoned performer can own a crowd in ways that you can't teach. You know, it's something that you eventually adopt because you learn through trial and error. And that's exactly where I was at at that point where I, I mean, if I gave you the impression that I was book smart, that was a good um, manipulation on my part because I was not book smart. I, I'm a little bit more book smart now, but I probably had never even read a novel up uh, until that, in, like up to that point, unless it was forced on me in school. And I cheated my way through high school and college because all I was doing was hip hop and like chilling out at the radio station trying to get my name heard. So, yeah, funny times, man. And I I also know that your experience with Anticon early on was a negative one due to uh, an interview that pedestrian which who was one of the founding members of AntCon, he did for i don't know if it was a magazine or a website that they ran um but it was like a gotcha moment type of interview where he was trying to um prove that you say that you're a black person and um do you remember that well, the, the, yes, I think I know the one you're talking about. The, but the, before that, my very first interview I ever gave, this is our first routine we ever made. My first interview I ever gave, I was sitting outside So-Called Underground in like 2001 or two, and my first single had just come out. And so it was the first time I ever gave an interview. I was on Jaybird's cell phone, borrowing his phone. Yeah. And I just talked with the guy about the about the 12-inch. And then after that, we just started shooting a breeze about hip-hop. And somehow Anacon came up and I said, like, I don't like them because, and then I gave him my critique. I was like, I feel like, you know, I just gave him my critique. Okay. And then he ended up printing that critique and I didn't know that that was going to happen. And so that led to a whole thing on the blogs and like, it was just, and I ended up actually, um, yeah. So that led to this whole kind of controversy with them. Right. The, so the and rift so then was I, created at that point. So you were... A target of yeah. sorts. Both sides were targeting yes. each other. Yeah, I get it. 
But yeah, but then me and Merce were in the Bay, and I think that's the one. Me and me and Merce played at Slim's like six months later in the Bay, and somebody was interviewing me, and then he flipped it on me, and Merce kept trying to get us to fight. <laughs> Merce was like, hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. <laughs> yeah, that was just so, but we, I mean, that was a, a, you know, from that point on, that's the thing that made me say like, even if I'm having a difficulty with somebody, I'm never going to go at anybody by name ever again. Like, it's not worth it. You know, I maybe we'll talk about ideas or approaches or something like that. But um, my intention yeah, is to never go at approach. anybody. The, the only reason I wouldn't go at someone by name, because I don't want to have to always answer to that. I don't want that to be part of what's discussed every time my name is brought up. You know, I, I don't want right. to talk about it online. <laughs> I, so if I don't like somebody, I just keep them out of my mouth. I, I have no. And that's the exact opposite of what I used to be. I, I would go at anybody. I would talk all the shit, mostly because I didn't really think I had much outreach. So how, what it, what does it matter? Um, I'll, it's fun to talk shit on people I'm not into. But that was I mean, I'm a whole different person now. And if I don't want to have to answer the stuff I said back then or did back then, but you know, if it comes up, at least I can admit, nah, I was wrong or, you know, they prove themselves to be hor horrible people and that's why they're not in the mix anymore. That's all. I think so much of you were so much more prolific than I was early. So like you had all those early mixtapes and all your early freestyles and all of that stuff. And the, the situation and the context that you were making that particular music in is one that doesn't exist anymore. And I feel like of all of us, it feels like you are some of the, you're one of the most exposed people based on the fact that those old mixtapes and those old freestyles are like on streaming services and you can find them, find them. And I think divorced from the context of like the world of underground hip hop at those early moments, 1998, 99, 2000, like it was such a competitive, like blood sport type mm -hmm. of environment. Um, like there's times where I think you're saying stuff about women and you're actually mocking the like overly like masculine misogynist dudes but but I, but it's it's crazy because like you're mocking them but now that stuff doesn't really exist and we're not associated with it and so people wouldn't realize the environment i think that you were there's like a tongue in cheek mockery of that type of stuff right that's dangerous like, <laughs> yeah i mean cuz like now people are really seeing you know people can really hear some of the stuff that you were saying, but w completely out of context. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like it's, it's, it's one of the things about you being so early to record and release those things and like make them available to people that just like really leaves you exposed. Yeah, well, I was, I was willing to risk that because I was desperate, very desperate to be heard, um, and also f to show that I had varying styles. I had a diverse portfolio when it came to my hip hop and on and and spoken word and battle. And it was like, oh, you don't like this? You might like this though. So that's what that was the purpose of the mixtapes. And even the first album, uh, the studio album, Personal Journals, which we're celebrating the 20-year anniversary right now. But that album, people don't make albums like that anymore because it's just it's so all over the place. Is like it does it's it's almost so everything and the kitchen sink. 
and I'm including live tracks on a fucking studio album. You know, it's weird. It's like, but it made sense at the time. And I think it really encapsulated that era for me. Um, and I wanted to do that because I also was thinking, what if I never get to put out another album? I want to make sure I'm showing everything that I can do and what's possible with this style or this style. And that's where I was at. That's why it's like 18 songs long or something like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of want to remove remove certain mixtape stuff from the streaming services. I might do that at some point um, because I want to be able to control at least some of the context in which it can be um, enjoyed. And that might mean I have to put it with some type of box set or, a, you know, a, a book to come go along with it. Some big project that's going to take me a long time. And I've, I've had it in the works forever, but, uh, th- yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. It's, it's just strange. Like someone will say, Hey, have you heard Sage Francis? No, let me check them out. And they jump on Spotify and then like some corny, stupid, funny freestyle will pop up, which very poor right. quality. And it's like, Oh, this is Sage. No, I don't like that shit. <laughs> it's like, that's not really my music. That was a, a, an experience and a moment on a radio station, you know? Yeah, and especially if people are like, well, I want to hear the first album because that's going to be the best one. And if so, if you go in chronological order, you're going to hear like some of the like sick, the sick, uh, you know, freestyle mixtapes joints. And those are not, I mean, that's a, and that's a really good indication of the way that you were able to make your voice. I mean, so many of us in the underground, like we were really struggling because so many of us were dope live. You know what I mean? Like when I think about, um, I watched the battle with you in Acrobatic recently. And I think that's actually the first thing I saw. So like the, you know, the the saves that I saw in the battle with Acrobatic, like you look like you went to the barber and got your beard lined up. <laughs> and like that, I that made sense to me. I'm like, okay, I know a white boy that can rap like that, that looks like that. So then the, when the guy showed up with the, you know, with the, with the wig and the Metallica shirt, I was like, I don't know this guy. I don't know how to, I don't know how to come at this guy. But, um, but, you know, so many of us were ill in that particular time. And so our scene or the people that we were in a room with or like for me opening up for Atmosphere all the time, it's like anybody that was in those rooms knew that you were dope. But the real challenge for most of us was like, how am I going to make something? How am I going to put something on wax that can travel further than me? You know what I mean? And so I think so much of the what those particular mixtapes did was like those were able to travel in circles that could get your voice known and heard, um, you know, where we might not be invited to to rock or we might not be invited to perform. And like so much of that energy of that time in particular, and it's one of the reasons that I think that comedians and rappers get along so well is because especially when we're starting out, there's this, there was this expectation that the person that's on the microphone is there because they're going to say something that the audience can't say. Like they're going to say something edgy. There's going to be something about, they're going to say something you're not supposed to say. And that's where so much of the early electricity and energy and magnetism around comedy and hip hop, especially at that particular moment was around that. Like you're supposed to say something edgy. And so like, we're all, we're trying to figure out, well, what's my version of this edgy thing that's going to, that's going to make people listen to me and want to hear me. Yeah. So like we're searching to find it. What I, what I enjoyed about it and what I thought was special about it was hip hop 
was a way for me to say things I can't say in my day-to-day conversations or in school or in church. It was my, it was its own space where Mm. it was supposed to be safe. (laughs) And, um, and it was, I was, was, I was wiling out. I was saying some really off the wall shit that I wouldn't stand by. And I wouldn't say, yeah, that, that those words are coming from a place of honor. Nah, but that's not what it was for. Um, it may have turned into that, but like hip hop and, and in life you grow in the hip hop, you grow in your, your style of hip hop. If you've, um, developed your own voice, um, if you are still rapping the same kind of stuff you were 20 years ago, okay, you would you stuck to your gimmick because that you can't pretend like you haven't changed in 20 years. You're committed mm-hmm. to a gimmick that um and that's not to downplay gimmicks. I'm I'm not shaming gimmicks, but it's not natural. And I like the Sage Francis thing is not is wasn't like it can only be this one thing. It was always supposed to be something that would evolve with me as I grew as a person. And admittedly, I was stunted as a, an adult because I toured <laughs> for 20 straight years and couldn't maintain a relationship or, or build a family during that time because all of my energy and efforts went into my business and my art um, until it didn't. And then there was a massive switch, which I'm experiencing now. So that um that is a very it's a, a a transitional period that I'm dealing with that's taken me a while to make sense of, and I welcome it and I'm I'm grateful to have gotten this far that um, I'm indulging in in domestic life so I'm gonna take that. Man, I remember when that I remember when I realized that that switch was happening. I think we were at Soundset like one of the last years that Soundset happened. Yeah, and you and you and Dolan were there. And I could, it just seemed like you were having, you were having this really profound experience where like you had been on the road, you and Dolan made this really fun record. Everybody was happy to see you again. I think you hadn't been on the road for a minute. And I think it, it seemed like it was really fun and like it was really feeding you in a certain way. But then also something happened with the girls at home and you were realizing like, oh my God, like I'm not there for my daughters right now. Yeah. And like you were having, and I know that, I know that like existential crisis artist moment where it's like, man, the whole reason that I am what I am is the fact that I have this art. Like, this is how I found myself. It's how I have freed myself. It's how I express myself. It's how I provide for these children, but it's also taken me away from them. And just like the, the deep, like tragic tension of all of that. Yeah. Music's the only constant of my life. It's the only mm, mm, constant. mm. It's always there. And now it's, <laughs> that's a problem. Uh, but when I, when I last saw you, yeah, there was that sound set. And I remember I broke down. I actually started crying. I was like, I was, there was a lot of turmoil I was dealing with and I was unable to express it in full. And I knew that wasn't the moment to do that. And I felt awkward about it. Um, as some, I, I think something about speaking to you and just being next to you and, all the memories of, of what we've been through in music. And I know that we have similar experiences and situations in our career. It just was, it, it all hit me all at once. And I, and I, what, what, what I was going through back at home was very um, traumatizing in a certain way. Um, and it's nothing I can even talk about. So that's something I, I'm, I, I'm having difficulty dealing with now because 
up until this point, I just kind of spoke freely about pretty much anything without anyone in mind. Like I didn't have to worry about hurting anyone's feelings or exposing Mm -hmm. anyone or telling anyone else's story. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's just one of the, uh, one of the other, one of the other realities is like, you know, when, so, you know, we come from being in this battle culture where like, we've got to fight just to even prove that we deserve to hold the mic. And that's why I think a lot of people don't understand that part, that like it was physically dangerous yep. to just grab a microphone for anybody. But then if you don't look like you're supposed to have the mic, it's like, man, everybody in this whole situation could turn on me. I have to make it known that I deserve this from the beginning. I'm not to be messed with, not on the mic, not not with the hands. Like I'm, I'll fight if I have to. So like we go from that to then trying to break through all the clutter and noise of the underground hip hop thing. And then a lot of us also made that transition to, okay, now people are listening. Now it now I have the luxury of actually being an artist. Like I want to share what's going on in my heart now. So we made that transition. But then in that time, then you end up revealing everything. Like there's no, you, you kind of move into a place where I think for all of us, that was really new to say like, all right, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to let you know what I cry about and what I worry about and what my hopes and dreams are. And so I think a lot of us also ended up oversharing or just kind of like <laughs> developing this this way of <laughs> this way of just, you know, spilling it all, you know. Yeah. And then then you get to a point where like okay, that's not really that cute anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like even the listeners might be like cuz now the listeners are all growing as well. I think that we were really ahead of a lot of the listeners in that time that took them a minute to catch up to this new like openness. Um, But even with them now, it's like, man, if I were to say some of the things that I used to say, I, I don't even know how well received that would be. And yeah, that's why people need to chill on the whole, Oh, you need to make another shadows on the sun. Oh, you need to make another personal journals. It's like, it's literally impossible. And I know Eli was talking about that on the episode you just had with him. It's like, you can't, you're a different person. You, your mouth is different. <laughs> it's, it's like words don't even come out the same way. Uh, my, the, the synapses in my brain are different. It doesn't, nothing snaps like it used to. It snaps in a different way. Not saying it's better or worse is we're different people. And we're, not only that, it's a different world. We live in a different world. Right. That's what's so cool about being yes. able to talk to you about this and having you have other conversations because it's about an era that is, like I said, is dead, it's gone. It's a, it's an old world that we can look back on and it's not spoken about enough because I think a lot can be learned from that. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, rock and roll, rock music has journalism that preserves all its eras and even like bands that weren't big and the, the stories are told. But I feel like our fossils are a lot of them are, are going to be buried for a long time and they might not ever get recovered without um, people like us talking about how it was. Cause it was an, it, not only was it special for us, it was a special time in, in the world where the internet was brand new. Um, it was mm-hmm. pre smartphone uh, post internet. So it was a very interesting middle ground. So when I was coming up, people didn't know what I looked like. Um mm-hmm. That's why I could go to Scribble Jam and wear a wig and a, a Metallica shirt. And people, 
I mean, I wasn't really trying to disguise that I was Sage Francis because most people had no idea what I looked like, even if they knew my music. Um, I could stand in line at my shows just just to hear people chat and what they were talking about. They wouldn't know it was me. Um, you yeah. know, that's cool shit. But um, that <laughs> and I always like when fans will comment on like YouTube videos and, and share stories like that. I love it because I don't remember most of that. I just was like, a, I was just kind of going off and touring nonstop. It's all a blur now, but yeah, those were interesting times. And art wise, it was interesting. We were still trying to figure out, are we going to maintain the sound of hip hop that um, we grew up loving? Are we going to totally abandon it? What are we going to allow into the mix? Is it our place to do that? As for me, I felt like it was only right for me to do something that sounded weird and different so that I didn't come across as someone just jacking a black style. So I had to sprinkle in some real of my weirdo tendencies into my music because it was me. And I was like, that is like, you know, my contribution to something that gave me so much in my life. Last week's episode of this podcast was a really special one. And one of the things I'm learning is that we really have a built-in listener base that is here for all things hip-hop, especially underground independent hip-hop. And there are certain guests that really speak immediately to our listeners. But then there's a whole other part of my life, and there are all these people that are incredible to me, and they're stars in their own world. Um, but they don't necessarily translate or speak immediately to the people that are that are already plugged into this podcast. So there are incredible guests that we have that in their world, they are huge, you know, but their fan base doesn't necessarily know me and my fan base doesn't necessarily know them. And so some of these episodes just have criminally low numbers. And one of the things I hate about that the most is that it seems to be particularly really amazing women of color that are in my life. So the Amanda Seals episode, I mean, she's on a groundbreaking series. You know, she's out touring the country right now as a as a stand-up comedian. She's done amazing things in music. And when she's on The Breakfast Club, there's millions of views. Her episode on our podcast is one of the least streamed and viewed. Um, over and over and over again, Mumu Fresh, Memuna Yusuf. I mean, even even Ilhan Omar, like just those views and those those streams are considerably lower. It's one of the things that I'd really dislike about the fact that I'm I speak to and I'm part of so many different communities and I can't always seem to bring them together. But so many of the of the guests on this podcast, all of them are amazing in their own ways and they all have really incredible things to share with us. And last week we talked to Amna Mirza, who's the strategy and marketing director at Zakat Foundation, but she's so much more than that. I say all that to say that Zakat Foundation, because of my relationship with my sister Amna, has been supporting this podcast and really making it possible from day one. And that's the case because of the fact that they are so creative 
and they're so groundbreaking as a global humanitarian organization that operates all over the world, wherever people are. It's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims. They don't use their work to proselytize. They partner with the people that are in the communities and in the situation that they're looking to be of assistance and of service. And all of these things, all of these realities are really groundbreaking. You know, religious communities do most of the charity in the world. That is the case. It is the truth. It's also the case, the other side of that, is that a lot of times they almost require of the people that they help that, like, you got to at the very least study our religion. And we're going to really encourage you to convert to our religion because we're here to serve you, but we're also kind of here to try to convert people to our religion or our version of our religion. Zakat Foundation doesn't do any of that. Like, it's really just motivated. Uh, from Islam, from the perspective that it's our honor and it's our duty, it's our privilege and our responsibility and our sacred uh, obligation to help others when and where and how we can. Uh, but the Zakat Foundation just sees it as that alone. Like we don't have, there's there's not an ulterior motive there. And that that really speaks to me. It really matters to me. Also, the fact that they partner with the people, the, the people in this situation, in the ground, in the communities that are affected by whatever nightmares the Cop Foundation is arising to try to, to help and assist, that the people that are living that nightmare every day, they're the ones that understand the nuance. They should be in the driver's seat. They should be in positions to to steer the way that the work happens. Otherwise, you can end up making a bigger mess. So these are things that really speak to me and really matter to me. If you go to Zakat US on social media, Z-A-K-A-T-U-S, you'll be able to see all of the dope work that they do. And I'm telling you, these are people that I know. These are people that I trust. These are people that operate in a way that's ethical, that's thoughtful, that's thorough, that's not rushed. They're not in it for clicks and shares and likes, even though they get a lot of those. They're not here for accolades, although they have received some of the highest accolades in the industry. But they are really people that are dedicated and creative on a spirit level, on a heart level, to serving the human family and really being part of and engaging the human family. So check out their website, also zakatfoundation.org. Find the things that they're doing that might speak to you and jump in. We're really grateful to be in partnership with the Zakat Foundation. You mentioned personal journals, like when it came out and it was so, it was really like eclectic even within one album. Because at that time we're thinking like, man, I'm going to make an album. It's not like I'm going to make my first album. It's like I'm going to make an album. There was no guarantee that anybody would ever hear that one or that we get to make another one. Yep. And as a performer and just like as an overall creative like artist, especially when you specifically are in a space, you're able to do so many things. Like you really are like, you know, you're able to like you're an amazing storyteller. Plus add to that amazing MC who writes great songs, can freestyle, I'm like one of the most amazing, hilarious freestylers. Like I'll never forget certain things. Like I have lines that I say of my favorite rap songs all the time, like just yeah. in my head. Like I can never see a Marriott hotel without remembering this super disgusting line that Musab said about the Marriott. Like I just can't do it. No matter how much Quran I try to memorize, it's like I still, every time... Every time I go see a Marriott hotel I, or see it like on a whatever, this Musab line. But there are certain things that you said 
that I just think about all the time. So you said, yes, the rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm drinking up the Red Bull. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I should get a sponsorship for that. I don't remember that. (laughs) Dude. And then then one time, uh, me and you and Sean were on stage at this little like hole in the wall spot called the Dinky Towner. And and you said, you said, uh, Sean is chilling. Ali is chilling. What more can I say? Bob, Bob Dylan. Dylan lives up the street. <laughs> you got it good. Oh, and you had this whole thing that you were doing. Amazing. I remember that. But yeah. so, but then your physical, like your whole physical thing too, man. Like the way you use your body is so unique and so different. It's like you're a comedian. You're a storyteller. You're an MC. You're a singer, you're a host, you're a, like all of these things. And, and I mean, your poetry, you can beatbox. Like there's just so many different things that trying to get all of that into one album, I think was really important and really necessary. And it's like, I, I you know, we try to like, losing Bismarcky is such a huge thing. Like Bismarcky in a lot, a lot of ways is like the embodiment of the culture. And I try to like convey that to people that never saw him do his thing in a room. It's like, man, people are like, yeah, but didn't Kane write his rhymes? And like, it doesn't matter. Like, it it doesn't matter. Yeah, because like, it wasn't the rhymes the, that mattered. <laughs> no, it's like, but there's nobody to replace this guy. There's nobody to replace this person. And, you know, in your own way, I think you're one of those artists and you're one of those just figures that is so incredibly unique and special. Like there was no one like you before you. There'll never be another person like you. And the people that were in those rooms, like the challenge of trying to encompass that or just capture that on a CD is really difficult to do. But, you know, I think that you, I think you've done it as well as anybody. Thank you. I mean, yeah, to put it on an album entailed uh, taking a lot of risks, which turned off um, traditionalists, uh, and fundamentalists. Um, I, you know, that just came with the territory, but I think over time, a lot of people did come around and come to appreciate that for what it was. And now people aren't even listening to full albums anymore. So it may not matter with new, new generations coming up, but, um, f- funny story about Bismarcky and rest in peace. I mean, I love Bismarcky coming up, but he was the last, um, celebrity artist to snub me, uh, at a show where I was playing a show mm. with him in Arizona in Tempe. And, um, I was like, he was, he was about to go on and the promoter was like, yo, you want to say what's up to Bismarcky? I was like, no, no, no. I was like, you know, like he's about to go on. He's like, no, he's cool, man. He's cool. Let's go say what's up. And I, like, I walked over him. Like I felt like a little kid. I was like, oh, I don't even remember what I said. Mr. Bismarcky? And he like, he just like turned his head slowly <laughs> and just looked away. I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and then I I told him on, like I tweeted at him. I was like, yeah, Yo, you snubbed me. <laughs> He's like, that never happened. That's what he said to me. That never happened. <laughs> so whatever the so case. He's not doing any, he didn't, any gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's a, that was a story that like I always think about it. Whenever someone mentions Bismarcky, I think of my like my last true vulnerable moment as an artist trying to just say hi to another artist. Like I want to always be receptive to people who come up to me, you know. But I understand that sometimes it's just not the time. It's just not the right vibe. 
I don't know who you are. I don't know what your intentions are. I may not want to get into a conversation with you. I may not want to take your picture because maybe in 10 years it'll come out. You run a pedophile ring. Who knows? Like lots of crazy shit going on in 2022. Yeah, man. I know one of the things that we have in common is that we both have been like really embraced by Chuck D. Right. And like, and like championed by him. Yeah. Bless him, man. Like Chuck, Chuck, man. Yeah. And I mean, I know for both of us, it's like, there's nobody that we respect more in this, in this culture or in the world. You know what I mean? It's like, that is the ultimate like hero who not only will answer our phone call or text or return our text, but really like I've, I've, I've seen him go on like, you know, Twitter rants about you and about how unique you are and how dope you are. And, you know, what is it? I mean, it's uh, how do you even talk about something it, like that? But I mean, it's tough to talk about because I'm, I'm not sure I can properly convey how much he means to me and what he meant to me as a kid. Um, it, it was my first concert, Public Enemy, uh, opening up for Run DMC. And um, I was I just. Public Enemy blew my mind, continued to blow my mind for several years. Um, later, continued to blow my mind in what he did in his later years um, and who he was as a person. And I, I remember when, I mean, I played Rock the Bells with uh, Public Enemy and I was eating alone at a table and Chuck D just came and sat with me at a table. He was like, hey, can I can I sit with you? It was like, pff, you know, like schoolgirl moments for me where I was just was like, oh, my God. You know, this is a legend by anyone's standards, um, my personal hero. And he's like totally down a powwow with you on, you know, big me, big you type energy. Um, and I remember when he released that video, which featured both of our pictures on it. You called me that morning or left a message. It was like the first thing I did. I ran to my computer. I was like, what? What? Uh and I, I just did a song with him. I actually uh, just did a song that uh, was produced by Buck 65. And Buck, like, he never had in- encounters with Chuck D, but he grew up on Public Enemy just like us and adores Public Enemy. He's like his favorite group. So the fact that he got to do a song with Chuck D, he pulled out all the stops to, to like, make this official. Like, it's, this shit is so good. And I, it's so good. I want to just hold on to it. I don't know. Like, I'm not ready to to use it on anything. I'm going to hold it for a while and wait for the right project. Cause like that is one of my crowning achievements in, in, in music. Like I got to do this song that I think is really dope with my hero and mentor. And yeah, I mean, these are things that are unbelievable to me and make me think, is this a dream? Like, is this really happening? Like, did I die at 12 and like the rest of my life is just some kind of, uh, I don't know, projection <laughs> in the ether. I don't yeah. know. That's wild. It's crazy too. Like, you know, the fact that so many people, so many people, it just, I don't know if you have this feeling, but I have this feeling that the world is always, and it's just like, what world and who are these people? And like, why do they matter to me? But I, no matter what, I can't shake this little feeling somewhere in my mind that people are saying like, you didn't really make it. You know what I mean? Like there's some, there's some thing and there's some imaginary person in my mind that's like, yeah, you could have made, there was a time when I wasn't sure. Like there was a time when I was on the late night TV shows Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, it felt like the industry was kind of 
like, you know, flirting with me or something. And it seems like a decision somehow that like, no, it's not going any further than this. This is it. Um, at least for now. But there's a thing that I have where I'm always like, man, it's not a consolation prize for me to say that the things that actually matter in my heart, when I, when I get rid of that voice and like what actually matters to me, all of those things have happened in ways that are so beautiful, you know, and it's like friendships like ours. And then also having these people like Chuck D that is a genuine older brother and friend and like someone that shows up, like he'll show up for you. Like he'll show up for us the same way that, we, that the same way that you and I would show up for each other. Like if I just text you and I'm like, hey, will you do the podcast? Yeah, sure. Like I just texted Chuck and I was like, hey, I'm starting a podcast. Would you be on it? He's like, yeah, what are you doing right now? <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. <laughs> like it, it doesn't feel like a, I don't think it's a consolation prize or I don't think it's me just kind of like reassuring myself to say that this actually is more meaningful to me. Like having friendship, brotherhood, having a genuine connection with the people that I grew up with, saying like, that man is the reason that I want to do this. Can you get KRS on a podcast? To... Man, it's interesting when you say snub. So I've never, I've never shared this, but so I met KRS when I was 13 and he brought me on stage. I saw the picture. And he, I've shared the picture <laughs> every year. Like, yeah. it's, like I need people to know that, you know, and I don't have many pictures, but I have a picture of that because my brother shared it. That's an origin story picture. Um, absolutely. Like, that's the day I became me. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got on the stage and he's giving a lecture and I'm like standing there with him. He I asked a question. He brought me on stage. He was, that's, you know, now you see a KRS at a show, like anybody that raps or beatboxes, like he'll have some kid from the show, like or the audience, like DJ his set. You know what I'm saying? Like now it's like that. But this is 1990 KRS-One brought me on stage. And I'm standing there looking at him give a lecture. And I'm like, this is I'm, this is going to be me someday. Like I just knew it. And then he told me, read autobiography of Malcolm X became Muslim. Like I, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say my whole life is in that meeting. Mm. So then when, we were, when I was on Rock the Bells years after the one that you and I were on together, there was like... Uh, 2012, there were kind of like rumblings that this was going to be the last Rock the Bells. And so I'd been on Rock the Bells with KRS like multiple times. I'm like, I want to, I haven't really like re-met him and like talked to him. I've been in rooms with him and stuff, but I've never like had a chance to be like, yo, all this for me is because of you. So I was like, okay, I have, no, I have to do it. Like I'm doing it today. And I kept seeing him and he was in a rush. Like he was in a hurry. He's like running around backstage and I was just like, man, I'm just going to be rude. And I went up and like grabbed his shoulders. <laughs> and he's so yeah, much, he's big. taller than yeah. us. I like, I'm like, so I'm like, I'm like, excuse, I'm like, KRS one. <laughs> I'm Brother Ali. And he looks at me direct, dead in the face and he goes, yes, you are. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, when I was 13, I'm like, when I was 13 years old, you gave a lecture and I asked a question and you brought me on stage. And he goes, and you never left. You're still rocking. <laughs> just staring at me. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I'm like, man, I just wanted to tell you, 
I, like I'm sorry to bother you, but I just wanted to tell you my whole life is because of that day that I met you. You told me to read the autobiography and then I showed him the picture and he's like holding my phone and he's like walking around with my phone, showing it to people. And he's like, see, like, yeah, this time I was, I just came from being homeless. I wore the same clothes every day. And, but he's like walking with my phone, <laughs> not talking to me and showing the picture to other people. And I was standing there with Crondon and Razcast. And me and Crondon are, are dear friends for obvious reasons. But then Razcast is very cool to me, but he also like teases me and like ribs me a little bit. And Razcast is actually the one that was like, hey, Chris is right there. So he, so I had to look, go almost like wrestle the phone away from him. <laughs> like he was kind of, I kind of felt like he was like punking me a little bit. <laughs> and I went there to kiss the ring. And I, but, and I, but I wasn't sure. I was kind of like, that was weird. And so I turned around and Razkaz was just looking at me and he's like, hey man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that, that happened. I'm just like, dang. He's a, he's a complicated cat. I mean. He put on one of the best <laughs> hip hop shows I've ever seen in a in a in a very uh -huh. intimate, uh, small type of club and rocked the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. It was so good. It was I, I was like wow. And he also put on one of the worst hip hop shows I've ever seen. And that is blasphemy to say. Yeah. But I watched the crowd trickle out during his performance. It was that bad. It's like you don't really ever know exactly what you're gonna get with KRS One, but um yeah. I love that story because I can see the, just how awkward it's a very, uh, like, what the hell are you supposed to do? You know, you're like, you're in a position where you, you, you have to be like, Hey, Hey, asshole, you're my hero. <laughs> and like, I'm here to bait, like I'm, I'm standing here as an artist who's one of the main artists on, I, I'm on the second stage, but I'm one of the main artists there. And I've been on this tour the last five years. Yeah. And like, I'm I'm trying to tell you that my whole life is because of you. You know what I'm saying? But like you said with Biz, like I, I mean, first of all, he doesn't owe me anything. Mm -hmm. Like what else could he possibly, does he owe me kindness, understanding? Like what can I say he owes me? And then I did grab him when he was like running around backstage, like mm -hmm. he was at work and I, I, am, I did impose myself on him. But it's such a trip, man. It's such a trip. Yes, um, you and I are. Had, I had Kenny Parker on. No, I know. Yeah, yes, no, I listened. You are. <laughs> no, I heard the. I, I bought the book. <laughs> I bought the Kenny Parker book. My name is Kenny. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I've, I've got it sitting on my shelf, ready to go the next time I have a solid hour. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a very interesting. I I loved hearing him talk. I, I was like, yeah, I've always known who Kenny Parker is, but I've never really truly knew who he was as a person. Yeah. Man, when he, that book is amazing. And it just, it made it all make so much sense to me. Like so much about KRS as a, per, as a human being comes into focus because like, like Kenny's his elder brother and KRS is, was always the aloof kind of artist that they were worried about. And to hear him describe the thing, I mean, it's, it's a heartbreaking story. Like so much of their childhood is like genuinely yeah. tragic, but um, it's just, it made so many things make sense to me and yeah, hearing all that. But the, the, the hilarious thing is that the next day we went to Chuck's house. Like Chuck was like, yo, bring the whole touring crew over to the crib for breakfast. So we go over his house and I tell him the story and he's like, what? Yo, hold on. So he gets his phone out <laughs> and he calls KRS and he's like, man, I'm getting a voicemail. He's like, yo, Chris, what the f man? Why are you this brother Ali, man? <laughs> da, 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 da. 
And I'm like, yo, Chuck D is calling KRS-One to, to yeah. you know what I mean? It's just like, man, incredible. Travelers Podcast is sponsored this week by BetterHelp Online Therapy Platform. And when you use our link to sign up with them, you get a discount and we also get a commission that helps us do the work that we do here on the Travelers Podcast and at Travelers Media. Therapy is just something that more and more people are becoming aware of. They're getting used to the idea of therapy. It's become part of the conversation, but a lot of people are still not actually themselves in therapy. I don't mean following therapists on social media, which I do. I don't mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, like watching YouTube videos and starting to use the language and starting to kind of think about, well, how might this relate to me, which I also do, but actually taking that step of signing up and sitting with and committing to the therapeutic process, the process of therapy with a trained specialist whose job it is in that moment to serve us and to really talk to us about our specific set of experiences, the narratives that we're telling ourselves about those experiences, the ways that those things resonate and show up in our bodies and in our lives and in our thought patterns. Somebody whose job it is to, to unpack all of the things that are going on inside of our lives that are framing our own relationship with ourselves. And they are trained to, to have a roadmap for what, how a human being makes meaning around the things that have happened to us. And to asking questions and that frame things and that just help us look at ourselves and our lives from a different perspective in little manageable bite-sized uh, exposures and increments. A lot of times it's like, man, I don't want to get in therapy. Most of the time we give ourselves these excuses, but really what's underneath it is I don't want to know what's going on inside there because I don't know if I'll be able to handle it. It, My pain, my trauma, my fears, the things I've been keeping my, from myself, I've been keeping these things from myself for a reason. And for most of us, our trauma happens because something happens and we need to survive that moment. So we find a way to bypass. We find a way to, to survive that moment or sometimes to survive that decade. And so one of the things we find out is like, yeah, you needed that in that time. But the difficulty comes in when we start carrying that way of being. In, and, and making it a false universal, just this is just how I am now. So Resma Menikim says, when trauma isn't contextualized, it starts to look like a personality of a person or it starts to look like a family trait or it starts to look like culture even for groups of people. But it's not their personality. It's the fact that we had to survive a period in our life that was traumatic. And so we weren't able, we didn't have the resources, the time, the space, the safety to examine in that moment, we just had to keep going. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not a bad person. I'm not bad because I did that. But if I continue to operate the rest of my life as though I'm still in that traumatic calamity, then I end up 
not realizing that I'm limiting my exposure and my relationship with myself and with my life and with the situations that I'm in now, I'm not able to show up and be present in life as it is in this moment because I'm still carrying old ways of being from the past. So say all that to say, uh, a lot of us are still getting used to the idea of actually going to therapy for ourselves. And then once we do, we have barriers. BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P.com is here to address those barriers and to try to bridge those gaps that a lot of us have. So when you go to betterhelp.com slash travelers, that'll let you know that we put you in touch with them. Uh, you'll get a discount and we'll get a commission as well. But you'll be taken to a questionnaire, a survey that's going to ask you, what is it that's bringing you to therapy? What are some of the things that you think you might want be ready to sit with and to explore? And then also, what are your specific uh, kind of preferences for the kind of person you talk to. Do you want to talk to a man or a woman or a person from a certain background, a person with a certain type of expertise or a certain type of therapeutic approach that they take? Then you get access to their calendar. So you start looking at their calendar for like, okay, this is a person I think I might want to talk to. This is when I'm free. Then the next thing you choose is, do you want to see them? and talk you know, with your, with your cameras on and seeing each other on the screen? Or do you just want to do audio only? Or do you just want to start by texting? And you have access to start messaging them immediately. You can send them voice notes and texts. And if at any point you feel like this isn't the person for me, you just there's a button right there. You just change therapists. It's no big deal. It's no questions asked. There's no hard feelings. You're in control. It puts the, the person who is exploring mental health in the driver's seat. It bridges the gaps, it breaks down the barriers, and you even let them know what your financial situation is. So I discovered this platform from listening to a podcast. I figured, you know what? I don't have access right now, but I think I'm ready to do therapy for real. And so I went on there and filled out the questionnaire. And for me, it's been really, really helpful. And that's why we reached out to them and said, hey, we have a, you know, I, I learned about this on a podcast. I have a podcast. We talk about a lot of these issues. I've had therapists on this podcast. You know, would you be willing to partner with us? And they said, yes, absolutely. So go to betterhelp.com slash travelers, fill out the questionnaire, commit, and just see what will happen if you actually jump into the the space and the just the beautiful world of therapy and um, start this journey. We're really grateful to be partnered with BetterHelp. Again, betterhelp.com slash travelers. One of the things that I find with artists is like, it's really necessary that artists have these relationships. And there are certain relationships that really like allow us to find, find and define who we are, at least who we are in a particular moment these artistic marriages that really allow for an artist to develop in, in really specific ways. Um, so, I mean, I just, I've seen you and Dolan together and like the, the, the version of yourself that you're able to be with him, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So I wonder if you could just talk about what that friendship and brotherhood and business relationship, but mo most importantly to me is, the art that that's that that's created well yeah it's 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 a long history actually that 
has ups and downs and twists and turns like any other. But uh, when we first met, we didn't click very well. Um, again, like people were just guarded all the time and working with lots of armor. And uh, he he actually he hit me up. He moved back from New York after 9-11. Um, I had already established um, a pretty strong spoken word scene in Providence and I was running the slam there and uh, he was told to look for me by the the, po the poets in New York. They were like, yo, when you go back to Rhode Island, you got to find Sage Francis. So he hits me mm. up and he asked me to like be part of some workshop he was doing at a school. Um, I don't know if it was elementary school or junior high or high. I have no idea, but I just was like, no. <laughs> like no i'm not gonna go back to school i fucking hated school i don't want to go back there i'm gonna say stuff that's gonna get me in trouble um that's not happening no so he took that as like wow this guy's really punking me like fuck sage francis and so he stayed he, he just stayed on guard for a very long time after that but he was going to the slams and doing the spoken word stuff and owning the stage like with the writing and with the performance in ways that were professional like what i was like this cat has something special um and i let him know so and i was like you know and we ended up um i think we were doing like man we ended up on a team together and we went to actually we went to minneapolis together for the national poetry slam and um i can't remember if that's like when we really broke down or, or got closer I, it was such a long time coming. It just like everything just melted slowly into a, a really good friendship uh, and partnership. But so after actually after, oh yeah, after the election, <laughs> when George Bush was reelected, he uh, and I were like, are we going to go out and throw bricks through windows? Like, what are we doing right now? Like when the results came in, and mm -hmm. he came up with the idea of no more.org thinking like this would be an organization that would give a rap sheet on every single business so that when people purchased items, they would know if their money was going to support certain politicians or certain laws or certain wars. And I was like, you know, this is the only thing we can do. If our voting isn't working, we have to vote with our dollar. We have to help people work with their dollar. And I was like, yeah, bet I'm down. Let's do that. So I funded that and um, helped promote it. And then we went on, he wasn't even known as a performer yet. No one knew he rapped. Um, I took him on the healthy distrust tour in 2005 and we did a no more.org tour. Like I named one of my biggest tours after this website and organization. Yes. I so remember he, that. he came on that as a merch person and a driver. So he was there kind of to witness how us indie cats got down with like handling a lot of our own stuff and um, how much money can be made if, if you're doing it properly and, you know, and, and running a business tightly and like a like a military operation. You know, that's how it has to be done. There's no fooling around. There's no partying. There's literally you do what you got to do. Get out of there with with as much money as possible. And hopefully you get to do it again at some point. So that's what we were on um, and promoting, obviously promoting the, the website and everything else. But after that, you know, we ended up putting out his first record, The Failure, which speaking of records that are all over the place, that album is like, has four rap songs, three 
hundred skits, uh, <laughs> two spoken word pieces and lots of noise. And it's theater of the mind type of stuff. And I think at, at the time it made sense for that. I wanted to put it out cause it was so different, but I think it's it, for him, it separated him from what he wanted to be viewed as. Like he, he's a dope ass rapper. He's like an incredible rapper. He's an incredible rap performer. So he, I, maybe people didn't really respect him as an MC for putting out something that wasn't rap heavy, really. Um, which he followed up that with uh, the fallen house sunken city, which is just a banger of a hip hop album straight up produced by alias. And, um, but again, maybe a couple years too late because everyone kept moving on to different things and he could prove himself a number of ways. And I think he was always chasing that moment where people would understand like he's better than you. <laughs> like he's better right. at what he does than o- almost all your favorite rappers. Um, so I had him being that he was so reliable, reliable and so dope. I, and, and fun to travel with and easy to travel with. Cause I, I ended up, a lo- I ended a lot of business relationships by touring with people and we didn't click in the van together, you know, being together for more than three days in a row, their mask melted off and you got to see what they really were. And mm-hmm. like, nah, like that, I'm not into this. We can't work together anymore. I don't like feel good about it. Um, so with him, it never was like that. And he kills the stage and he makes me step my game up when it comes time. Yes. You know, I can't come out with a slouch of a set after B. Dolan just fucking right. rocks it. So, yeah, because he will. Yeah, it's so ill having people open for you or support. You know, at that point, they're not just the opener, like they're the support. And like if they make you feel like it is possible for them to steal the show and you're the headliner, there's like you have to bring your A game every time. Yeah. I feel the same way with Mally. Like I feel like I just want Mally to to come with me until he's ready to, you know, do his own joints. But yeah, Dolan is that dude for sure. Yeah. So we decided at at a certain point I didn't want him to be an opener anymore. I was like, if we're gonna do shows together, let's do it together. Let's do the show as a group. Mm-hmm. Even though neither of us really knows how to collaborate all that well. We're you know, we're not we're we're, we're so insular. We're such we're such we're recluses where we stay in our little tiny spot. We never go outside. We like to write in a dark room all alone and with no one can see the, the mistakes that we make along the way. And mm-hmm. so that made it a kind of strenuous as a, as a group. Um, um, and I'm very proud of the Epic beard men material, but the reason I picked the name Epic beard men was because I wanted it to be a silly fun adventure and not us brooding or being overtly political uh, because we do that in our own solo material. Let this be a break from what we do normally. And um, turns out it's actually tough for either of us to do that <laughs> for a whole project. So there is a lot of really serious um, um, and political material on, on the records. And um, yeah, so we toured as that, that was the last time I did any heavy touring. And when we were done the last tour together, and that's when I saw you. Uh, I think both of us were of the mind that this is it. We're not going to do this again, at least for another 10 years, if we're still doing this in 10 years. Um, so I was like, you know, I was glad that we did it. In fact, the only reason I met my wife is because of the Epic Beard Men. The very first show we did on tour was a free show in Connecticut. That's when I met her. So it all like is a beautiful experience for me. I So when people ask if we're going to do it again and I say no, it's not because... 
it's bad or we don't like each other. But uh, yeah, he's been very careful with the whole COVID thing. So he's not trying to go out. He's he's immunocompromised and all that jazz. And um, yeah, it sucks. I, I miss him. I miss having him around. I miss being able to have the kind of chats yeah. that we would have. Yeah, man. It's crazy. Like the friendships that we have being musicians because we tour so much and we travel so much. And during the time that we're on a tour together, it's really like you and your best friend on that tour. Like when you talk about like after a while, the mask falls away with certain people and like, you can't, you can't, you don't can't mess with them anymore. Like that's when I knew, like when me and you did the, um, the thing that Merce put on the, um, pay dues like we did that paid dues tour that's when i was like i remember even telling my wife like dude sage is my best friend on this tour <laughs> you know what i mean and you were sitting next to me on the couch and you go we're getting along <laughs> like yeah me and my wife say that all the time like dude, like anytime i have like a new like tour friend i just did this tour with this comedian uh named prince abdi and i told t- i told my wife i'm like man i got like a new artist buddy and she was like we're getting along like that's a, a, a callback that we have to something you said back then. But it's so like really unique, I think, to people that tour that we go out and when you're on tour and when somebody is your friend, like your your main buddy on that tour, you bond with them so hard for the month or six weeks or two months or whatever that tour is. And then it's so normal to not even text them for six years. And like nobody takes it personal. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like they're on another tour, you're on another tour, you got some new friend on that tour, they or or you hate the people on that tour, they got some new friend or they hate the people on that. Like, there's no like we never have to explain to each other, I'm sorry I haven't talked to you in a decade. But that's really tough, I think, I've found for other people in my life. You know what I mean? That like you bond with them and then it almost feels to them like false advertising. Like, man, I really thought that we were really close and then not, how come I never hear from you, you know? And I'm wondering like, especially with, with COVID, like do you have non-music friends? And if so, what's it like for you trying to trying to stay connected with them? Adult friends. No, not outside of music. Besides my wife, that's it. Um, it, I actually have reconnected with some high school people I knew in high school. Uh, they drop by and you know say what's up. Is that's you know, but no, I, I mean I don't stay in touch with anyone who I would say is like a constant friend. Um, it's all music related. Like all the artists, like I run Strange Famous Records, so I I facilitate a lot of projects, and I'm you know. I'm always coordinating from between artists and that's where my friendships exist. I suppose Um, a lot of, I mean, I'm friends with them, but we don't, I don't live next to anybody. Um, It's something I I figure would, will happen within the next 10 years with the kids being involved in sports and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how adults do it. I don't really, you know, I'm not, I'm not a community person. I haven't gone out much. I mean, we do go to the soccer games and baseball games and that's about the only times we get out. So nah, yeah, that's weird, huh? Like, I'm not sure it's for me. 
that might be a failing on my part personally, but I feel like I don't have time. I mean, to it's do such that. a strange life that we live, man. Where like, when would you do that? Like the like, we're so overexposed when we're on the road that like, you know, somebody, especially if we're, you know, the head of the tour, we're never really like our, our private moments are so sparse. Like we we never really get time to be private like we're constantly you know when we're at the show where you know everybody wants our attention and or is deserving our attention and then yeah it's just like a we go through these long periods where we never really are ever alone and so then the times that we are able to be at home I mean most most artists that I know that really tour when they are when they're off tour like they just don't hang out with people like they become hermits you know what I mean? Like that's the recharge time. Yeah, that be that was actually a big problem of mine. Um, after 2010, mm. when I decided I was going to yeah. stop touring, which lasted for four years, and I, I I did. I just secluded myself. I was here in this house that I'm talking to you from now. I turned it into the strange, famous um, records office and storage space once I moved to Connecticut, but. Um, I think it's because when you're touring and you're out, you're not part of people's everyday lives and you're missing a lot of anniversaries and birthdays. You're missing a lot of sports games and just stuff people experience together frequently. And you're not part of that. So it's like you're you're out of sight, out of mind kind of with yeah. um, socialization and, and social circles. Um, and I wouldn't never want to force myself into that because I have no desire to be part of that. So I... But I do, I mean, you're my friend, you know, like I can reach out to you. It's, I'm, I feel lucky that we get to have interactions when we do. That's what a friendship is. That's what I feel like people have friends for. Um, of course, it would be cool if we could have dinner every so often and, you know, have yeah. our families hang out. But yeah, we're, we're of a very particular breed of people who have traveled this world extensively for long periods of time. And we don't have that luxury. It's like we traded one luxury for another luxury. And now maybe I'm at a point where I can uh, make more sense of uh, a more typical social life. Um, you know, one of the things that like these, we get these like really intense relationships because I'm, I'm saying like people talk about, you know, that couple years that they were on the football team or that year or two that they were in combat or that year or two that they were in that fraternity. And like, so their life was so concentrated, like they were so in touch and in tune with each other for a period of life. And we have that in some ways, like extended, like it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's an extended type of like arrested type of like really intense. The times that we are together are really intense. And I've been thinking about the fact that also a lot of our relationships. So like me and you have only been friends that just both do the same thing. Like we've never made art together, I don't think, and we've never been in business together. No, the and only so thing it, that we, we the only thing that we did was Doomage. I had you on the uh, that's the right, remix, that's right, the that's nonprofits right. remix. Yes, yeah, and I'm <clears> grateful for that because we because me and Brendan toured with Doom, but I never I never got to make music with Doom directly, and so like mm. the you put me on that was the one thing that I could. And so we end up like connecting with people. Like if we share a person and that person dies, like that's a major thing. Like the one time that I can remember you being at my crib was that we, Mikey's mom, uh, Idea's mom, Kathy, threw that thing in the park. 
and yeah. we both did it. And you came over. And I remember my wife went out to do something and she came back and you were like laying out on our couch. <laughs> and she came back and she was just like, she just pointed at me and she was like, you are happy right now. And I'm like, yeah, man, he's at our house, you know. <laughs> um, but what's a trip, though, is that these are really intense relationships. And if we're in a, a deep friendship with somebody and we also have a deep artistic relationship with somebody and we have a very deep and nuanced and long and sometimes undefined business relationship with somebody, if any one of those three things go bad and we lose those relationships, for me, they are devastating. Like, like if I'm no longer cool with somebody that I was cool with for a long time in this world, it like... I don't know if I'm ever going to recover from some of these things, like falling out with people. Yeah, it's uh, it sucks. I I feel like it happened to me frequently early on, and I uh, maybe developed a very thick skin about it. Or you know what mm. actually happened was I I've I've um, reduced the number of connections that I I make deep connections. You again, you are you are you know, everybody, it seems, and you, your friends, you're pretty friendly with all of them. Um, I, I'm not like that. I, I just stick to my old friends, um, when, uh, but new ones are coming along, but they're my artists, you know? So they're the mm -hmm. people I work with. And some of those, there's some fallings out with them. Like not every relationship goes well, but first it's not going to break me at this point. Like the people that I, Man, I guess there are a couple that I, that would break me now that I think about it. But like we stopped, like you said, you'll you'll not talk to someone for ten years, and then when you reconnect with them, it's like you never left. You just pick up at the conversation where it was before. But how many ten years do we have in us? And um, before you know it, like a lot of them are dead. Um, a lot of them may have changed as 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 people or in location, and no, nothing's the same. I don't know. I guess I don't think about this stuff. <laughs> that's a, that's what it boils down to. I actually never think of this stuff. I don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one way to do it. that's one way to do it. <laughs> I just I came to that realization. I don't think of I never think of this stuff because I'm just consumed with everything else. And again, yeah. with a family, like I, my mentality has like switched to a point where I'm like, I just want to make sure nobody jumps off the roof. I just want to make sure nobody sticks their fucking hand in the oven. You know, like right. I want to make sure that they're reading well and like they're learning without, you know, being forced, anything being forced on them. They're learning and they're enjoying it. And like, I want these to be good human beings. I know I can't control all of that, but that's my main focus and my main energy maybe even to the detriment of my marriage because it's so tough when we're all living on top of one another in lockdown for yeah. two years straight. And yeah. Yeah. So that's, I have to focus as much energy as, as possible on my family life. So socialization and friends and all that, that's great, but definitely far, far from the front of my mind. Yeah. It's almost like we're on a different tour now. Like now mm -hmm. we're on tour with the people that, and, and it's a trip because, you know, some the, like in our group of people, like some of us had kids early. Yeah. So like me and Slug, the, when we went, hit the road, we already had kids. 
you know, and then we had more later. So we kind of did both. We kind of did like had kids late, earlier and then had more later. But for the people that didn't, it's it's strange because, you know, we used to go on tour and, you know, switch the people that we were with so often. And a lot of times we would, the people at home may feel abandoned or neglected or we may yeah, feel disconnected from I, them. I, I need, I, I, actually, you're such a good person to ask about this because I feel like I'm going to experience it and I need, I need some insight as to what kind of mentality you have to maintain in order to not get, not feel depressed, I guess, when you're away from your family in order to do what you have to do for the family. Um, I'll have to tour at some point. There's no way that I, mm. we can afford our lifestyle without me touring. Mm. Yet, I can't go a full day without seeing like my baby boy. I can't yeah. like it, like I know it's going to actually negatively affect me in a ways I'm not totally prepared for, but you've been yes. through that and I need to understand like how how do you reconcile with those feelings? I mean, I didn't really fully realize how much I was like compartmentalizing and lying to myself until the pandemic came. Because you have to be know, like that, son, right? That's that's what I was thinking. You have yes. to you have to compartmentalize yes. it. Yes. And yeah, I mean, you know, so my son was pretty much born around the time that I started doing stuff. Um, you know, the first time I ever went on a the first time I ever went on a run of shows. I mean, in this I was in a bad situation, my first wife. I don't know if you ever met my first wife, but when no. I met you, I was still the angry person that I was partially because of the, the situation I was in. But I mean, my first run of like serious run of shows I ever did was with, it was right after 9-11. It was with um, Vast Air and Idea and um, Aesop was supposed to be on it, but he wasn't. Um, he was he was struggling, but it was like right, right after 9-11 and Lyft was on that run. And I came back and my son had been like burned because my wife didn't, wasn't looking after him properly. And one of the things that I think back on is the fact that like, I knew that, he, I knew that that situation wasn't great. And I went on tour again after that, mm. you know what I'm saying? And it, I, I did get it. I did straighten it out. You know what I mean? I did get him a safe situation like really quickly, but I didn't realize fully until the pandemic happened. I couldn't tour anymore. And then I had, we had two more babies. So we have two like little girls and it's a trip because they, I don't think they'll, now we live in another country. Like my two older kids grew up watching me rock these like, you know, 30,000 people shows and like, they know me as the guy that we're in Minneapolis and everywhere we go, somebody recognizes us. And my little kids have no clue that that's who I am. Mm -hmm. To them, I'm just, you know, like I'm such a like regular dude. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I just, I didn't, I didn't realize how much I was compartmentalizing, how much my wife was forced to do that, how my kids had to do that and they just had to figure it out, you know? And I don't see how they couldn't on some level feel abandoned. Yeah. by me yeah like chuck gave me great advice chuck told me and when i first met him i'm actually met chuck the day that our my oldest daughter was born me and him were doing a show together and my wife was in the hospital 
Like it, it started in the beginning of labor. And she was like, you better go do that thing with Chuck D. Mm. But I was talking to him about it. And he was like, man, he said, if you tell them, make sure when you're home, they know when you're leaving again. And that when you leave, they know when you're coming home. And like make that something they can rely on. And if you do everything you can to never break that. Like don't leave when they don't just on a whim and don't come home late. Like if they know when you're coming home, because that's going to make them feel like they're part of it, like you're accountable to them and like you're doing this for them. Mm -hmm. Don't just make it feel like you're coming and going as you please. Don't ever let 24 hours go by without talking to them, listening to them, telling them what's going on, tell, you know. Right. But man, I don't know if there's a way to do it without, with without creating some little part of your heart that's not that you're not sharing with them well and vice versa yeah i know i I suppose i could just smoke crack it probably would help yeah Yeah, i mean you can shut down yeah and a lot of people yeah that's what i'm saying (laughs) that's what that's that's what i think happens with a lot of people that just shut try to shut themselves down so that they're not consumed by uh these these guilty pangs and uh, a lot of, I mean, shit, people have to work for a living. So I'm, I'm guessing a lot of like fathers and mothers who work full-time jobs sometimes overcommit to the job because they're overcompensating for what they're trying to push down in their conscience about, you know, this isn't how human life is supposed to be lived. Uh, you know, I, I right. fucking deeply miss my kid. I, you know, I need to see my people a lot, but I'm not seeing them enough. Now I'm not going to see them at all. And yeah, people branch off in crazy ways. Uh. Yeah, man. I feel like there's, <laughs> like I always get to this point and I'm like, man, there's a million things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, but you've been incredibly generous with your time and with yourself and with your insights. And Well, I'm sure we can yeah, come, man, yeah, really we can come it. back to this. There, there is a lot we, sh- we could discuss. I'd love yeah. to. But let's let's get back on it quickly though. Like I know that there I know I've come to the end of these with people and I'm like, yeah, we'll do another one, but there are certain ones that I book my bookmark and I would I would love to come back to this one like you relatively soon and, and you talk got again. It. Yo. I appreciate, appreciate you. I love same. you man. I love you. Peace to BK1. Everyone who uh, say what's up to your wife for me, please. Yeah, I will. I will. Peace. All right, brother. Special thanks to my dear friend and brother, Sage Francis, for being so generous with his time and himself and with his wisdom and his experiences. I'm still really learning how to do this because, you you know, I got a guy like Sage where we have such a long and beautiful and rich history together. We've had these really amazing life-altering moments together. And then there's always just this question of like, you know, we get in conversation, a public dialogue. Do we try to revisit these moments? Is it possible to relive them or to, you know, to reminisce about them together? Is that even possible or is that just strange and weird? You know, do I try to do a retrospective with these guys, you know, and and these people that I'm connecting with? More than anything, I just want to give people a sense of their heart and who they are as human beings and just give a little, whatever window we can into the bonds that we share by doing this together for all this time. So really, really grateful to Sage Francis. Go to strangefamous.com. That's Sage's uh, record label and his cohort of artists. 
you know, since he has been in this period of his life, he's really dedicated this chapter to serving other artists. So go and check out Black Lick and all the other artists that are part of that platform on Strange Framus. And like and share and subscribe. It really does matter. You know, these aren't artists that are operating on a big level. There's no record label behind it. There's no big distribution. It really is just the direct connection with the fans, which is, and that's what keeps it free and sincere and meaningful and authentic. That's what makes it real culture. So all of the liking and sharing and subscribing and commenting and recommending and rating and all of that stuff really, really matters. But also go to strangefamous.com and buy something. Get down with the artists who have Patreon, get down with that stuff. When you see merch, when you see musical offerings, all of that stuff, support that stuff because that really, really keeps it going. You may think that like, man, what does it mean to for me to buy one album or for me to buy one t-shirt? Trust me, it means a lot. It means a lot. You can also go to brotherali.com and do all that stuff on our side of things. But we're just very, very grateful. As always, special thanks to Zakat Foundation, to betterhelp.com. Go to betterhelp.com slash travelers, sign up. You get a discount with them, and we also get a commission when you do that. Uh, and like I said, like and share and subscribe and comment and rate and recommend. And all of that stuff really helps very, very much with, with the things that we're doing. Um, special thanks to Amna Mirza, to Mansur Panawala, to Last Word, to Darian Washington, to Shane Atkinson, to Aida Rashid. Uh, all the people that listen and, and talk to me about these podcast episodes and how to improve them and share reflections on all of them. Really, really, it, it matters very much. Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1, and it's a production of Traveler's Media. We love you. We appreciate you. And we pray you're well. Uh, we are safe and sound here in Istanbul. Uh, recent explosions and attacks notwithstanding. And I'm actually applying for another year of residency for me and my family. So if you're a person that prays, please pray that that's accepted. If you're a person that sends good vibes and positive well wishes, uh, we are currently accepting all well wishes, positive vibes, and prayers that our family will continue to live here in Istanbul and that things will be good. I love you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.